upon a time, a great king was in love with a beautiful young woman. He had enormous power and wealth beyond imagination. And she, on the other hand, was pitiful and powerless. And though she was descended from a line of noblemen after many generations, through the treachery of the king of the land in which she lived, the woman and all her family had become enslaved. The great king loved her despite her destitution, and he went to war against those who had enslaved her and set her free. He wooed her with his love and his care, and he showed her all his grandeur and power. And the former slave girl fell in love with the great king, at least at first. And in those early days, things were blissful, but over time, she forgot about the pain of her enslavement and got used to the fine clothes and rich food of the palace. And she began to think of them as her rights rather than as gifts from her husband. And after a while, her heart began to wander away. And she took up a succession of lovers, first sneaking them in, but then later she would boldly go and visit them in the open. But despite her adultery, the great king continued to love his wife. He begged her to repent, to turn away from her lovers, and to return in love to him, and to be forgiven. And at times, he angrily rebuked her, confronting her with her sin and the shame that it brought on both her and him. And sometimes the woman would listen and repent, and things would be good again for a while. But over time, the seasons of repentance grew fewer and further between, until her continual adultery became too much, even for the good-hearted king. He took away her title and her fine clothes and her wealth, and he sent her away to live with one of her lovers, a man who said he loved her, but who was in reality abusive and put her back into slavery. But even as he sent her away, the king's heart remained devoted to his wife, and he promised her that one day he would come again to set her free from slavery and exile. Over the course of time, many years later, the king came again. He kept his word. He came to see his beloved wife, but when he did, he came in a way she did not expect. He came not as a great king, but as a penniless wanderer, traveling about with a small band of companions and supported by the generosity of rich friends. He pursued her for three years, but he could not win her love. She rejected him even as he revealed himself to be the great king who had promised her redemption. It's a great story, isn't it? You could write that down in a book and sell about a million copies and make a a whole bunch of money, right? Only one problem, you'd be a plagiarist, right? Because God already wrote that story. That's the story of his relationship with the nation of Israel. He is the great king who who redeemed a people who he loved out of slavery, who showed his love to them continually, and yet 
they abandoned him for other gods and for other nations until finally one day God sent them away into exile. You like worshiping other gods so much? Very well. Go and enjoy that for 70 years. And then he brought her back into the land. And she remained under the power of other kings down to the day when Jesus came. And he didn't come as the great king. He came as a penniless wanderer. And for three years, tried to have her recognize him as who he is. But she continued in her rejection. Amen. So what was the outcome of that? Well, there's another chapter to the story. And Paul is telling us what it is here in Romans chapter 10, um, beginning verse 18, down through chapter 11, verse 12. Um, I'm not going to read the whole text again for us, but I want you to just jump in here with me and beginning in verse 12. Um, you remember that all of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, all of chapter 11 are Paul's explanation of the fact that Israel has largely rejected her Messiah. Now, not completely. There are lots of, there are lots of members of the nation of Israel, lots of Jews who have become Christians, not only in Paul's day, but also in our own day. Uh, but the fact is, is that the king has come again to redeem his people, but they as a nation did not recognize him when he came. And Paul is telling why that happened. He is telling us that God now saves everyone on the basis of the fact that if they call on the name of Jesus, uh, that they can be saved. And that in consequence, there's a great need for gospel preachers to go out into the world, right? For people to proclaim the gospel to all the world because anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved now. But the fact is, there is a huge problem with Israel. Have they heard? Yes, they have. In fact, that's how verse 18 begins. Have they not heard? In other words, did Israel not know about what God has done? And Paul's answer is, of course they know. Of course they know. And his proof is a quote from uh, uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 19, verse 4. And that's really fascinating because Psalm chapter 19 is all about how even the creation itself testifies to God's power and gives glory to Him. And here, though, what Paul is doing is he takes the testimony of creation and he applies it to the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. Because by the time that Paul is writing these words, the gospel has spread throughout the entire known world. And the Jews all over the world have heard about Jesus the Messiah. So in other words, the rejection of Jesus in the time of Paul is not based on the fact that the Jews simply don't know anything about Jesus. Now other people's rejection of Jesus as Messiah might be based on ignorance. But Paul is saying, no. It's already spread throughout the known world to every 
Jewish community around the Mediterranean where they were scattered? He says, of course they know. There's no language, there's no place where the revelation of God in the person of Jesus has not spread to the Jewish people. And, and so then the question comes up, well, why don't they believe? Well, part of Paul's answer in verses 19 to 21 is that this too is part of God's plan. Believe it or not. As confusing as you might find that, it's part of God's plan. In fact, he spoke through his prophets to tell Israel that this is what would happen. In verse 19, you see him quote Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, where God told Israel that if they rejected him, that he would give his love to others in order to make them jealous and make them return to him. So in other words, this is, a, this is the fulfillment of a prophetic event going back to the days of Moses. This is not a surprise, in other words. This is something that God had planned to have happen. And furthermore, in verse uh, 20, he quotes Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. Uh, Isaiah chapter 65 is in the part of the book where Isaiah is talking about the days of Messiah, that in Isaiah's day are yet to come, but in Paul's day are already there. And he is prophesying that God will be found by those who did not seek him and that God would show himself to those who aren't looking for him. Who are the people who are not a nation? Us in the church, right? We're not a nation. The church is transnational, right? It goes all over the world. It transcends national boundaries, we're not seeking a theocratic kingdom. We are, we are seeking to, be, to have the kingdom expand beyond the borders of any one nation, right? There's no such thing as a Christian nation. There are Christians in every nation. But there's no such thing as a Christian nation. People are Christians. Nations are not Christian. And he is saying, and by the way, uh, according to this here, uh, who are the foolish nation? Wave your, wave your hand. That's you and me, right? We are the people who had no inkling of God's revelation. And nevertheless, the people to whom God is making himself known in the present day. Uh, we are the people who found God because God revealed himself to us even though we were not looking for him. Even though we were not looking for him, he was looking for us. And he said, I'm going to show myself to these people who are not part of the nation of Israel. And I'm going to make myself known to them. And it's us in the church who are being described here, even in Deuteronomy, even in Isaiah. Isaiah is written 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And even then, we are predicted as being part of God's plan. That we get the overflow of the blessings that were intended for Israel, but having rejected the Messiah, we get the blessings. And it's because of what Isaiah predicted. Uh, one verse later, chapter 65, verse 2, 
you know, that that has come to pass. Because Israel is the people whom, to whom God has held his hands out all day long and they were disobedient. We get the blessings of Isaiah 65.1 of being shown the living God and understanding who he is. Because they turned away in rebellion, we get the overflow. We get Jesus on the rebound, if it were, as, if it were okay? Um, we get him as the overflow of blessings that were not originally intended for us. And despite all that, despite her rebellion, despite her rejection of Jesus as Messiah, God has still not rejected Israel as his people. If you look at chapter 11, um, over one more page, uh, Paul says, has God rejected his people? What's he say? By no means. How do we know? Well, first of all, Paul himself is a great counterexample. He's a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And not just any Jew, but he's an apostle. He's the author of approximately half of the books in the New Testament. He is the planter of a dozen churches. He is the preacher to the Gentiles. And he is just, as he says, one part of the remnant that God is still faithfully gathering and saving out of Israel in every age, just as he was in Paul's day and just as in the days of Elijah. That's his point in referencing Elijah. You remember Elijah's story? It's a great story. In fact, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is 1 Kings uh, chapter 18 where Elijah's on Mount Carmel, right? He's up on Mount Carmel, which is, by the way, it is, it's an away game for Elijah, okay? Because Mount Carmel is one of the tallest mountains in Israel. It has snow on it year-round. And, and it is believed to be the place where Baal lives, okay? So we're going to go to the if you will, the home turf of this fertility God that all of Israel is worshiping. And they have 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, you know, kind of his, um, Baal's wife, if you will, okay? Uh, these prophets of Baal and Asherah up on the mountain, right? And it's a fantastic story. And, and it has not rained, by the way, for three and a half years, and Baal is believed to be the god of the rain and the storm. So it's like, well, if he's so powerful, what's his deal? How come there's no rain, right? And Elijah stands there on top of this mountain. He says, I'll tell you what we'll do, guys. Let's each make a sacrifice. Let's each make a sacrifice. I'll make my sacrifice. You make yours. And we'll all arrange our sacrifice on top of an altar according to our traditions. You according to the worship of Baal. Me according to the worship of the one true God. And we'll lay it all on there and don't light it. And the God who answers by fire is the God who is the real God. And he says, I tell you what, there's a bunch of you, so I'll let you go first. And it's a great story. It says, all day long, the prophets of Baal cried out. And they start hollering and yelling. 
And then the Hebrew is so understated, it says, but there was no sound, there was no answer. <laughs> right? And so at some point, the prophet of God decides he's going to throw the gauntlet down and engage in some smack talk with the prophets of Baal. I mean, that's really what he does. He says, well, maybe, you, maybe he's deaf. Maybe you just need to yell louder. Remember, we're on the mountain where he's supposed to live. Right? Maybe you need to yell louder. And it says they, they cried out louder and they start slashing themselves with spears and swords until their blood flowed. And then Elijah starts saying things like this. Well, you know, maybe he's, a, he's traveling. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's in the bathroom and you just need to bang on the door a bit. It literally says that. Read your Bible. It's fascinating. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Uh, and, uh, and it says there's no answer. Then Elijah makes his sacrifice at the end of the day. The time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah builds his altar. He lays the wood on it. He cuts the throat of the animal and he makes his sacrifice. He has them dig a ditch all the way around the sacrifice. And he says, Go get some water. Now remember, it hasn't rained in three and a half years. He says, Pour the water over the sacrifice. We want to make sure the the wood is good and wet. So we can get a good demonstration here. And he says, all right, pour the water again. And they pour the water again. Pour some more water. And they pour water. And the water runs down, covers the sacrifice, covers the wood, fills up the ditch around it. And he steps back and he prays. And the fire of God falls. Boom! And it says it consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the water, and the dirt in the trench. In other words, it is unquestionable who the real God is. And everybody cries out and says, the Lord, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And he says, well, if Yahweh is God, then he commands that all of these false prophets should be killed. Kill them all. And they do. But their repentance is short-lived. And Queen Jezebel, this wicked Sidonian princess who's married to Ahab, one of the most wicked men who was ever king of the nation of Israel, tells, sends a message to Elijah and says to him, May Baal deal with me ever so severely if you keep your head on your shoulders by the end of the day. And Elijah goes running off to the mountain. He goes down into what's now Saudi Arabia to the mountain of God and he seeks the Lord there. Chapter 19, 1 Kings. And he cries out to God. He says, look, I've been very zealous for the Lord. I have... Uh, I have defeated them and all of their prophets, but they have killed all of your prophets except for me, and now they're trying to kill me, and there's nobody that worships God in the entire nation, and what are we doing here? And it says that first God in response sent a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then 
he sent a mighty earthquake that ripped the rocks apart all around Elijah. And it says, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And it says, and then he sent a still, small voice. Elijah covered his face. And he went out to the mouth of the cave to hear the Lord speak. And the Lord said, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal and whose lips have not kissed him. He says, says, Elijah, I'm saving a remnant. And Paul is saying the same thing to us. He is saying that even in our day, just as in Paul's day, just as in the days of Elijah, God is always saving out of wicked people a remnant of people to belong to Him. God saved a remnant in the days of Elijah. God saved a remnant in the days of the exile. God is saving a remnant in the time of Jesus. God is saving a remnant now. And you know why that's important? Because God made irrevocable promises to the nation of Israel and they are still being kept. And it's a reminder that God is faithful and that He keeps His Word even to people who are rebellious against Him. God is faithful. And the remnant, Paul says, are chosen by grace. Meaning it's not based on their works. God doesn't look, in other words, for His remnant among people who are just nice people who therefore deserve it. It's not based on, on God going down and, and like, hmm, we'll pick out the best of all these folks and we'll save them. No. It's based on grace and solely based on grace. He said because if it were based on works, it would not be grace. Amen? Let me give you an example of what he's talking about, okay? How many of you all have ever gotten a free gift in the mail? Right? You got in one of those, right? Sign up, you know, become a, you know, buy this magazine and we'll send you a free gift, right? Is the gift free? No. It is based literally on your work by which you pay them money for which they send you a free gift, right? And, and that free gift is not free, it's based on works. Works that you have performed by someone else for someone else for which you were paid and, and from which resources you can now pay them, right? And then they will send you, you know, this fabulous, uh, you know, luggage bag that's, you know, costs $3 from China, right? But it's a free gift. That is not the way salvation works whatsoever. When Jesus says you get a free gift of salvation, it is what? free based on nothing you have done and everything Jesus has done in fact in spite of everything you have done based on what Jesus has done and in other words the Jewish nation the Jewish remnant that is being saved is being saved on the same basis we are as Gentiles by grace alone Here in this Reformation year, 500 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door, 
we need to remember that salvation is by grace alone. Amen? And Paul is very concerned to prove to the people reading this letter that this is not something he is simply making up. That he is not some kind of theological innovator. By the way, that's something Paul still gets accused of. You know, well, Jesus taught one thing, but you know, Paul, he did his own thing. No. Paul is very concerned to tell people, look, that what I am telling you is Old Testament faith. Let me explain it to you clearly, but this is the Old Testament prediction being fulfilled. And if you look at verse 8, what you see there is a composite quotation. He quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, and Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4. Uh, he had earlier quoted Moses and Isaiah separately. Now he quotes portions of them together. And he says, look, God, God has hardened the unbelieving in their unbelief, even as he is saving those whom he has chosen. And furthermore, he also quotes David. If you look down uh, verse 9, uh, Paul's, they're quoting David from Psalm 69, verse 22 to 23. David prays in that psalm that those who oppose the Davidic king would be judged by God. And Paul is saying that David's prayer has a fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the greater Davidic king, and those who oppose him are likewise uh, rejected and judged by God. And the point of all these quotations from Scripture, again, is that God is doing what he told his prophets he would do. That Israel would reject her Messiah and that they would, in consequence, experience God's judgment except for the remnant which he is graciously saving because he still loves his people, Israel. And they remain his people down to this very day. So here's one last question rhetorically that Paul asks here and he answers in the text. And it's down in verse 11 and 12. Look at the text. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Let me put it more simply, put it in more contemporary English for you. Paul is asking, is Israel done? Are they over? Does the church replace Israel completely and totally? Is Israel God's ex-wife from whom he has moved on and for whom he has no further plans? What's Paul say? What's the Scripture say? By no means. In other words, this is all part of a plan that God announced beforehand through the prophets. And what God is doing is making Israel jealous with the blessings that we in the church enjoy and that should be theirs. We are the prodigal son, in other words. You remember that story? Prodigal son, I, I, I would love to, to, to have artistic skill and be able to draw or paint this, right? You got this guy with, with unkempt hair, who's funky, who's got dirt under his fingernails, who doesn't have any shoes, who stinks like pigs. 
right? We were over in Morton yesterday, and I was like, man, somebody's been knifing manure, you know? And this guy smells like that, okay? And when he finally comes home half-starved to his dad, his dad gathers up his robe and runs to meet him, throws his arms around him, says, I'm going to give him the best robe and put sandals on his feet because sons wore sandals, but slaves went barefoot. And he says, I'm going to put the sandals on his feet, put a ring on his hand. In other words, give him the gold card, the signet ring. That certifies he's part of the family and has access to the family's resources, right? Guess who that is? That's us. We are the people who cashed in any resources we ever had from God and went off and lived in a far country and squandered our sustenance in riotous living, to quote the King James, right? We had a blowout with everything that was the fathers, right? And when we were completely out of other options, he drew us home and he threw a party. And Israel is in some sense just like the older brother. Remember him? The older brother who has access still to everything that belongs to the father is outside the party pouting. And saying, hey, you're throwing a party for him. You never even gave me a young goat. He's like, you don't need a young goat. Everything that belongs to me belongs to you. But Israel is at this time outside the party. And the intention is to bring them in. It's to bring them in. Look, out, look here closely, verse 12. Here, Paul tells us something very profound. He says, Israel's sin has brought God's blessings to the entire world. Israel's sin has brought God's blessings to the entire world. Through their rejection of Christ, the gospel is going out to all of the Gentile nations of the world. Just like in another story that Jesus told, do you remember this one? great king invited guests to a party. And the invitation went out to all of the people that he wanted to come to his party, and it says that they began to make excuses. And none of them came. And so the king said to his servants, go out to the highways and the hedges and get whoever you can find that my hall might be filled with guests. Well, look around. We are an assembly of whoever God could find. <laughs> okay. Um, as Paul said to the Corinthians, there were not many of you wealthy, not many of you wise, not many of you powerful, right? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, right? I'm a fool for the sake of Christ. And he's brought me in. Even though I was not originally invited. He's brought you in too. We are the people of the highways and the hedges who get invited to the feast. And look closely again at verse 12. Verse 12, Paul is telling us some more important things. 
He's saying that Israel's rejection of Jesus has brought blessings for us from Jesus. And if, and if that's true, then what will their full inclusion mean? He asked that question. And we'll get more into detail on that next week. But it tells us two important things. It tells us that, first of all, Israel's full inclusion is coming. Right? That they've not been set aside. That their full inclusion is coming. That one day it won't be just a remnant that will be saved. One day the great king will show himself again. And this time, the woman he loves will believe and be joined to him. And it also tells us another important thing. That when their full inclusion comes, it will mean even greater blessings for us too. If their rejection has meant the salvation of the world, then what will their full inclusion mean? It'll mean the kingdom has come. And even greater blessings have come to us. Now, as, I, as we look at this passage, I realize that for some of you, this passage is an answer to a question you don't have. <laughs> right? Um, that what about the, the future salvation of Israel? What about her inclusion in Jesus' kingdom? And, and therefore, you might be thinking, well, that's all very nice, and that's good apologetic information. And if I'm ever in a discussion with a Jew who doesn't believe in Jesus, I'll be sure to turn to Romans 9 through 11 and help them understand. Right? But that's not, and that's not necessarily bad application, by the way. In fact, um, remember that Paul says, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is for the Jew first. And so Jewish evangelism is not um, something which is not a priority. In fact, every place that Paul went to plant churches, where did he go first? To the Jew, to the synagogue, to explain the gospel. But let me tell you why this passage matters also to you and me right now whether you ever engage in Jewish evangelism or not. It means that God doesn't change His mind about us despite our sin. God chose the people of Israel to be His special people and to have a special relationship with Him. And God also told them that through them would come blessings to the entire world and that He would use them to bring people from many nations to faith in Him. Did God do those things? Yes, God did that. Uh, do they remain His special people? Yes. Even though most of them are hardened to the Gospel and to the Messiah, the Jews remain God's chosen people. And that has not stopped. He has not stopped loving them and saving a remnant of them even now. And He has not rejected them even as they reject Him. And that is very good news for us. Because God in His faithfulness is the same with everybody. We aren't Jews. We aren't the chosen people in the same sense. And, and even though God chose us and saved us also in Christ, we are not Jews, right? 
but we worship and serve the same God, and we, like them, are sinners too. Amen? We are sinners too. And so we need to know that our sinful rebellion against God does not mean that God shelves us. Amen? I need to know that. If God does not keep His promises to Israel because they were sinful, what does that tell me? It tells me He won't keep His promises to me. Right? But because God has and is keeping His promises to them, we can be certain that He is going to keep His promises to us. And to me, more importantly, right? Sometimes I don't care if He keeps His promises to all of you, but I care a great deal about whether He keeps His promises to me, right? Because I know that I am a sinner and I am going to hell on a rocket ship apart from the grace of God. And so it matters a great deal to me that God is faithful to sinful people to keep His promises even if they reject Him. That God has not rejected them and that He continues to work in them and to bring them to salvation in spite of themselves. That matters. God does not, our sin does not turn God's affections away from us. He continues to save those whom he loves, precisely as he said in his word he would do. God is faithful to his word. And number two, it means that God is going to fulfill his plan even when it doesn't look like it to our eyes right now. If you look at Israel and at her faith today, it doesn't look a great deal like God is turning them toward Jesus, the Messiah. Percentage of evangelical Jews in the world is like less than 1% of all the Jewish people. And yet the scriptures tell us that will happen. And since God has been faithful to his word with them, we can trust him with our futures too. You know, looking around this world, it does not look like a world in which Jesus will one day rule as king and over which we will one day reign with him. Does it? Does anybody look like, go outside or watch the news and think to themselves, well, obviously this is a world in which I will have a position of authority uh, under the reign of King Jesus. Right? That is not obvious to your eyes or to mine. But it is nevertheless true. One of the reasons we know that it's true is because God is still faithfully keeping His promises to Israel, even though it's not obvious that He's doing so there either. And it also means, therefore, that God's promises to us are secure. And therefore, we can believe in them and trust them when things do not go well in our world, our personal world. You know, as, as uh, Stephen mentioned, I got word this week, my brother-in-law James is unable to move his legs. As of today, he's confined to a bed or to a wheelchair, and doctors do not know he can feel his, why he can feel his legs, but he can't stand and he can't walk. And having been around the block a few times with people who have cancer, I know that once you get confined to a bed, it's not good. 
my family's world went a little bit darker this week. Going out there this, this week to see them. But here's what I know. That you can put your trust in a God who keeps His promises. That God's promises do not fail. And I know that for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that I know that God's promises are certain and secure and trustworthy is that, and that they will be fulfilled is because God continues to keep them to Israel even while they largely reject Him, even while they are disobedient because God loves them and He has made a covenant with them and God's Word and His covenant, Paul says to us elsewhere, are irrevocable. Amen? God's covenant and His promises are irrevocable. And do you think that God will do less than He has done for them for those who have turned by faith to His Son and rejoiced in His love and become recipients, therefore, of the new covenant that God promised. Do you think God will do less for you and for me than He has done for them? No. Because He is a covenant-keeping God and He is loving and He is gracious and He will fulfill His promises to us too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we can rejoice in You as the God who keeps covenant, who shows steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love You. And that You are faithful. And that You keep covenant even when we do not. You love us despite our sin. And You redeem us from out of it. Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to Israel, which gives us confidence that You will always be faithful to us. And that Your love and Your promises and Your covenant are irrevocable to us just as to them. And Father, we look forward to the day when all of the Jews will be included in Your kingdom. That we might experience and enjoy even more blessings from their full inclusion. And Father, we rejoice in their salvation. We pray that You would turn the hearts of the nation to You. And that also, Father, You would also turn our nation's hearts to You. Father, we, we know that America is not Your chosen people, but that out of it You have chosen many people to be saved. And Father, we pray for the salvation of many more. We pray that, that You would use us to be Your instruments to declare the Gospel here and at our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our families and around the world. Father, use us. Here we are. Send us with the Gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.